0: We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. This is episode two of Cascading Leadership. This is Jim Canitril, your host. And I am Lawrence Brown. Also your host. Those of you who caught our first episode, thanks for checking it out. Make sure that you are sharing it out to your networks and trying to get us as much exposure as possible. Let us know what you think. Yeah, absolutely. Let us know what you think. Any feedback that you have on it would be great. Couple odds and ends that I want to take care of before we get into the meat of this episode. The last episode was all about each of our whys behind why we're launching the podcast. And I think one of the things that I'm kicking myself that I didn't mention was the big reason why I want to do this is that these are conversations that people either don't have or don't know how to have. Right. And one of the big reason, big things for me is to try to take that awkwardness out of it so that we can actually understand each other, and understand where we come from and establish some common ground so all of us can move forward. This isn't a us versus them, one group versus another group thing. It's how do we have these conversations? How do we understand each other better so we can move forward together? Because if we're all moving in the same direction, that's how you actually advance the needle and have like real progress. So I can't believe that both of us missed that, but I thought it was uh, is worthwhile to bring it up in this episode before we actually get, get rolling.
1: Yeah, I think it's good to call it out. I think we did address it, but I think we addressed it to probably perhaps more indirectly and, and calling it out for what it is, I think does make sense because you take away the ambiguity.
0: Yep. The other thing that I want to mention, so one of the things that we're doing in these uh, first four episodes that we launched, we're obviously tinkering through any number of things, production, tech stack music credits, all that sort of stuff. Each episode is going to have a different intro and outro musical track. So episode one, I forgot to cite it, was actually, the song was called La Muse and uh, the artist was Mr. Smith. Today's intro, because I know that uh, Lawrence is a huge fan of jazz. Uh, No, just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Just kidding.
1: Yeah, uh, actually, he's, 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 Cracking that joke because I'm actually not a fan of jazz. <laughs> Long story, but I'm not a fan of
0: jazz. Yeah. So I, I thought I would troll by actually doing that, but I decided against it. So today's intro and outro music is uh, by an artist called Adeline Yo, and the the track is going to be called Kite Fly High. The reason why I mention it, one, we obviously have to cite where the artist comes from and give proper attribution. But at the end of the fourth episode, we're going to post a poll and get your opinion, and everybody that's listening will get to decide which track becomes our intro and outro track. So that's why I'm specifically mentioning it. So keep an eye out for that as uh, as we progress. So with that being said, that takes care of all of the housekeeping stuff and odds and ends. Let's get to the, the main attraction. So today, I might have referenced this earlier, but every great movie, every great story, whether you're a hero or a villain, has an origin component to it. So this is our version of LB's origin story. So the way that the, we're actually, we're going to do it as a two-parter because this is bigger than Avengers Endgame. (laughs) (laughs) So you better not uh, make me look like a clown, LB. Big pressure's on you. So the intent of these episodes is to give everybody a good understanding of where does LB come from? Like one of the core things that we're trying to accomplish is establish a basis for understanding some common ground. And the best way to do that is talk about what formed you, what shaped you, and how Mm -hmm. has that informed you as you move forward? And that's what we're going to do here. First part of it is going to be talking through LB's background, and then we'll pivot in part two to a conversation about LB's career and leadership journey and what the the path forward looks like so we got a lot of stuff that we're going to talk through so you ready
1: let's take it away
0: all right so where to begin i guess the best place to begin is at the beginning so lb nobody knows who you are
1: yep
0: tell us all about lb
1: yeah i I would say that So uh, a lot of the folks actually that know me personally, uh, that I grew up with, may not necessarily know this, but I am actually originally from Nassau, Bahamas. I came over stateside when I was uh, very young, and I think that the journey beginning, my earliest memories of when I was in the Bahamas was, I was always someone, even as a child, my mother talks about this, when I was little, I would sit on the porch and I would watch people go by. And I actually, I might have been maybe three or four, but I distinctly remember those occurrences because I was always fascinated by people, like they would walk past and I would wonder, see their facial expressions, and I'd wonder what they were going through, what their life experience was. So I can honestly say that I was wired from the very beginning of having a deep interest in understanding people and understanding their journeys. And that's why as a young child, I would imagine those things. And then we moved to the states, like I mentioned, and it was very different. I, I do remember our our being recognized as being different. And so what's interesting about that is is that we moved into an African American community in uh, Opalaca, Florida. And what I remember was that the the kids that we hung out with treated us differently. And so my grandmother, you know, shared with me the fact that even though we looked the same, that because we were from another country We were, they would make jokes about us being the ones that would work a number of jobs or whatever. And again, as a kid, I didn't necessarily understand that, but I I remember feeling somewhat like an outsider. Then fast forward. How old were you when you moved? I would say I was in second grade when we moved from Florida to Evanston, Illinois. So probably we were there, we were in Florida for like maybe three or four years, And then, like I said, we moved to Evanston, Illinois, which was a predominantly white community. And so I felt like an outsider, and outcast, because we were one of a handful of Black families at the time living in that particular and going to the school that we went to. And so that was interesting. And then we were there for, I don't know, maybe a year, maybe two years. And then we moved to Waukegan, Illinois. And when I moved to Waukegan, Illinois, it was really interesting because we moved into this apartment, complex. and I've only thought about this over the last few years. But what was interesting was that the majority of the families that were there were single mother families, but they were from all ethnic backgrounds. So I had a really good friend. His name was Jonathan. He was uh, Japanese, a really good friend. Her name was Carol. She was Irish. Scott and his brother were, I believe, from another European country, if I remember correctly. They were Polish. Amador was a really good friend of mine. He was from Mexico. So we used to joke about being in the United Nations. And then not long after that, I had a buddy move into the neighborhood or that I had met because I think he was already living in the neighborhood. His name is John and he's, uh, John is Haitian. And then my other close friend, Stacy Hemi, and he is from Liberia. So we were we legit we're like the United Nations. And so in in terms of what we saw, what we learned, a lot of it was more about at that time, at least as far as not understanding necessarily class versus race per se, but. I don't think that we necessarily saw the difference in in race because we ha- all had moms who, frankly, struggled. And oftentimes, whenever we got in trouble, it was whatever mother that was on deck that happened to see us doing something stupid. And she would, whoever that mom was, would admonish us. I that's think that what you're that, calling it? Yeah, yeah. That's the, you know, the new terms. It's all kind of new terms <laughs> these days for all that behavior uh, modification. <laughs> Let's call it that too. So yeah, I think the funny part. So I think of those, you know, fondly. I had friends uh, who were African American as well, and again, the, the the common thread was more about our moms were just trying to get ahead, and so we were really truly a village where everyone looked out for each other. And as we got older, we started to, to understand and notice the uh, the nuances. We had gone over to a store, and when we went into this store, and I think one of, one of the stories that sticks out in my head was myself and one of my African-American friends were asked to wait outside while the rest of the kids went inside. And at the time, we didn't think anything of it. And we went in, we waited while the other kids went in. And so we were standing outside patiently. And then my friend and I, we went to go inside and the security guard was like, no, only one at a time. Okay. Again, we're kids. We're just trying to go get candy and like rot our teeth out. And we we went in one at a time. But then we went back home. And when we were talking about this, one of the mothers, and I don't remember which one, oh, it was Carol's mom, I think. Yes. I, I, I won't, Don't quote me on that. But it was one of the parents, and they actually were upset and went back over to the store and talked to the people over there about how we were treated. And again, As that was even happening, still probably weren't like really catching what was going on, but it it was the after story, the backstory as they were talking that we started to understand that there was some sort of bias or prejudice that was uh, attached to that. And me being a naturally curious kid, I read a lot. So if there were books laying around my house or anybody else's house, I picked up the book and I just started reading. I didn't really have a discerning palette for what I was reading. I just, I always felt like that reading was important for me because it gave me the opportunity to be in the know. And so that's when my love affair with libraries began. And I was fortunate to have a couple of uh, librarians. Mrs. Davis is the one that stands out on my mind who took me on this journey of of reading. And I bring that up because I, when I started hearing words like, you know, racism or prejudice, I wanted to get a better understanding of what that was. And so I would always start with what my mother taught me to do, which was when I was reading, read with a dictionary, right? So I'm dating myself, but I looked the words up and then I would go. And then back then, again, dating myself, I would look in the encyclopedia for more information and then try and find different books and that sort of thing to have a better understanding. And I found it fascinating that people found it necessary to treat people differently because of their their ethnic origin, of their ethnicity. And so when I got to when I got to my high school years, I think that there was more of a better yeah, understanding.
0: So I, I have some follow-ups because I think before we get to high school, there's some stuff that I want to I want to poke at and see if it mirrors anything that I'm familiar with. you moved over here young, and yep. that's similar to my story too. You were lucky in that you had the adjustment period in Florida before you moved to the great white north. When you think about being a kid in the Bahamas and then moving to the states in general and then moving to the Midwest mm-hmm. uh, a little bit later. What were the biggest sort of culture shock items that you remember happening in each of those moves?
1: Yeah, I think that moving from the Bahamas to Florida was the sense of family. I felt like I was there was always somebody around taking care of me when I was in the Bahamas. And interesting enough, I, I remember my Aunt Edith. I remember my mom, I remember a couple other you know people that I could name by name my Aunt Sylvia. But the others, I probably couldn't name by name, but they were always there. And so there was a sense of comfort. And then moving to Florida was just a difference because it was my mom and it was my grandmother. And my mom worked, you know, two, three jobs. And so I spent a good amount of time with my grandmother. And so I was highly dependent upon her support, her love, her, you know, guidance. And so I was very close to my grandmother uh, all the way up until her passing when I was sixteen, but and then I would say that the culture shift from Florida to to Illinois definitely was the cold, which I still don't appreciate <laughs> to this day. That was a big one, yeah. And I think literally the difference. I think that to me, like the Midwest, also represented a different sense of warmth from the people, like that, that I could remember. It. it wasn't the same. Like people, even when we were in a, a community it didn't necessarily like us, it was, I think, to some degree, from a distance, it wasn't an issue, right? It was when we we talked about who we were or where we were from, or people would share, because we were in a small area. I mean, Opelika is a very small town. And I don't think that once you started talking about it, now, of course, I had some friends, but there were people who were definitely resentful, I think. I remember that. But then when I moved to Illinois, I think clearly... It felt again, I wouldn't say that I classified it as race because I don't know that anybody ever called me out of my name or anything like that, that I recall, but it was definitely a colder sense of whether or not I was received when I was, you know, in the classroom or whether or not I was received when um, talking to some of the teachers who did not look like me. I noticed that, and I think that what was inviting about Waukegan, though, was is that when we moved in, and it was completely happenstance, right? Like, other than the rent was the right price that my mom could afford, that was the only reason that we wound up in Waukegan in those particular apartments. And the, the tribe that we fell into, we all, again, just, I think, had a similar sort of arc of perspective from the position of class, and none of us felt like this kids. We we just didn't call each other out. Like there was no real difference from the kid that was Asian to the the kid that was Hispanic to the kid that was Black to those of us that were of a part of the African diaspora. There wasn't really necessarily a, a big difference, and. That was something that I uh, appreciated. And I think that it helped me to, we were we were definitely in a predominantly white neighborhood, but I think that it helped us to acquiesce into the environment with, without really a lot of effort. I think that we were able to do that because we supported one one another through elementary to middle school to high school.
0: Interesting. the uh, The other thing that I was curious about, I'm wondering if the store incident was the first instance where you started having this sense of difference happening Is there like a specific instance where you're like,
1: oh, yeah, it's the it's the one that it's the one that's the one that comes to mind the most for me. And then, of course, as we started getting older, I think that once you get into high school and so you kind of the community. Right. So, you know, that there were different pockets who lived where and then you would start hearing different things. You would hear people saying different things. And it was. It was almost like the thing that I distinctly remember, particularly in high school, probably even more so than middle school was, or what was it called back then? Uh, Was it middle school?
0: It was middle school, junior high, and high school. Junior
1: high and high school, yes. So in junior high, yeah, in junior high, it was, I think it was definitely more diverse. And then when we got to high school, I think it wasn't, it was definitely less diverse. And I just remember that. I almost felt like everybody had to pick a side, if if that makes sense. And yeah. and what was interesting was that we never really wanted to pick a side. It was, I think, one of the things that helped, right? Which I've heard a lot of people talk about this was that I was an athlete, and so that helps to be able to allow you to got to move back and forth across the different cultures. So I think that was helpful. I think that. We happened to be in a, a school where I think it was important because I, I think it like sometimes you hear people use this term and it says representation matters. And I agree with that, at least for me, from my vantage point, because when I was going through high school, we had a number of African-American instructors, teachers, even you know our principal was, was African-American. And when I think about that, it was like what came with it was like there was a certain expectation right from those particular uh, individuals for us that frankly I don't know that I always felt the same in some of the other arenas that I was in and so I think I had a fair opportunity a fair shot at seeing at seeing the difference like for example it was an expectation from from my coaches an expectation from my principal that we were going to college there was just like it was like if you don't go to college you're going to the military if you don't go to the military you're going to get a trade so that was something that was extremely important. Um, those were people that they lived in the communities that we lived in. I have this hilarious uh, running joke that there was a mentor that I had. And he was like my guardian angel. Because if I was doing something that would get me in trouble, it seems like he was always like there. And he had this like super deep voice. And every time I'm like doing something, he'd be like, Larry Brown. I'm like, <laughs> like... He used well, the voice you, of God on you. Yeah, I'm like, where do you come from? So, <laughs> I, and I, I think that with those, with those, with those stories, I, I remember fondly because I think all of my coaches had a vested interest. I, I grew up without my dad, and they played an important um, surrogate father role, offered me good amounts of, of advice when I needed the male perspective. So,
0: there's a couple of other things that, that I'm wondering about. So, you mentioned that when you moved to Waukegan, Your peer group was similar to you in that all sorts of different immigrants, immigrant backgrounds, and mostly uh, single, single parent households. And then you mentioned like your mom was like many other single moms struggling through when when you think about those foundational lessons, what were some of the most important foundational lessons that your mom imparted to you when Mm -hmm. she wasn't working 18 hours a day?
1: Yeah, so I would say that uh, that education was important. I remember at one point that for hour for every hour of television we had to read for two hours. So things like that were memorable. And I think it was also important that I, I watched my mom like she she was a constant reader. She graduated from high school, and I don't think I think she may have taken a college course or two, if I remember correct, like she did at the community college or whatever. But Still, I say she is, this is why I say education and intellect is not always about going and getting a degree, right? She's one of the most brilliant people that I've ever met. Tough is the nails. She used to tell me the story that whenever she bought the car, her dream car, that she was going to get the license plates, tough enough. And I can attest to that, that she definitely was. She was definitely a, a taskmaster, someone very disciplined. And I, I think that what I would probably, what you know about me is that I'm someone that is extremely driven. And I think that a lot of that comes from from my mother. Uh, a funny story is uh, one day we were having a conversation and she was really, get, she was getting really frustrated. And I'm like, I don't understand why you so you get so upset when we're having these conversations. I am what you made me. Right. And she gets so upset with that. She's just, ah, but it's true, right? It was stand for what you believe in, do the research, know what you're talking about, make sure that you are always kind and empathetic to people. I think she had a, I think she had a rough personal life and she was constantly talking about making sure that you're treating people with dignity, respect and, and with a sense of empathy. And she is one of the most empathetic people that I know. And so I think that those are the fortunate things that I carried with me. The not so fortunate things I think are that I've had to learn how to manage what we call passion sometimes, right? Because once I dig in, I'm going to go for it. And I've of course learned to measure not at all costs because nothing is necessarily shy of a shy of a family, right? Taking care of your family, everything else we can walk back from pretty much. So I think that it's really important, at least for me to remind myself of that, but I definitely am someone that will take the battle. No question
0: about it. So. The, no, that's, uh, that's good stuff. I think it's going to be interesting to parallel both of those stories as we get to it. The other thing that I was I was, I was wondering, oftentimes when you're dealing with immigrants coming over to the U.S., hmm. you know, if you're in a similar immigrant community, you'll have in-group othering that happens, mm-hmm. and you have to deal with that in addition to the majority-minority interaction that happens. So yep. your situation is pretty unique in that you said that there was immigrants of all sorts of different types. Mm-hmm. So what was your experience with, did, did you get that othering feeling happening within the group or was it more external people isolating you?
1: It's a good question. I think in full transparency, probably most of um, the kids that look like me, kids that were African-American or kids that were part of the African diaspora, outside, uh, diaspora I think outside of Himi uh, and John, I don't know that we showcased that we were. We certainly didn't. If I mean, some of our friends knew it because we had open conversations. And like I said, you know, the United Nations, that group of friends, United Nations, that group of friends, they definitely knew it. I don't know that, I think that of the three of us, John and Hemi, who were, like, again, a part of, like I said, a part of the African diaspora, John is Haitian, and I think that John was probably the one that was honestly the most outspoken, if you will, because he speaks uh, French and Haitian Creole, and so oftentimes it would come, how did you get into that, and why French? And so I think that there was that that connection, Bahamian, the Bahamas is, is a former British colony, so English is the language. And so there was never a need to, you know, to differentiate why that was the case. And then I think Himi, who is Liberian, had the opportunity to do the same. So outside of that group, I don't think we really my point is I don't think that we keyed in on it. And so some so from a from an African American standpoint, I don't think that there was a lot of There was a lot of difference or othering for us there. But because we were perceived as African-American, I think that there was definitely some othering there. I can think of times where we definitely knew, got a sense. Someone said, someone told us that was because we were African-American, they didn't necessarily hang out with us. If they were um, some of our white friends that we had, it was no problem. And then for some of the others, you could see like when they would go hang out with their friends who were also white, there there were some nuances and there were some differences there. But I think outside of that, I don't know that, I don't know if it was, we didn't necessarily key in on it or it wasn't necessarily blatant. I can't think of a, I can't think of a time where there was like a blatant, some of the issues that we're, you know, seeing as a resurgence. Now, be clear, I I absolutely know that there were issues going on in the community. I think that we were just fortunate enough to be insulated from some of that. And I think once I, I remember... One of my uh, mentors, uh, Mr. Yancey, he taught social studies and he had a class and it was African-American studies or Black studies, I can't remember which one, honestly, but it was essentially about Black people from their historical context of their contributions uh, to the U.S. And I think my complete identification, I think, solidified when I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And it was because, first of all, it's a, it's a, it's a it's, an, it's a well-written, well-crafted book. And then there was some part in the book or something that I read or someone recommended by James Baldwin. And after I read James Baldwin, I think it was kind of like, oh, like my eyes just opened up to what it is to uh, be uh, Black in America. And his writing style, first of all, he's one of the most amazing writers ever. He's just, just a beautiful writer, beautiful human being. And what stands out to me is that even now, when you if you were to read say what is it the the fire next time, what he says, look at his quotes or look at if you do a search on say Google or whatever, what he talks about and race relations as it relates to what it is to be black and white in America is still relevant today, which is which is really so foretelling and I think from that perspective that I think that it helped to identify for me, but I think that the recurring thing for me has always been is you've heard me say this many times is that I think that one of the one of the challenges of why we can't seem to close the abyss right is because we don't start with and I think that if you don't start with humanity and you start with all of the, you are talking about kind of the othering, when you start with like those identifications, I think it makes it, you know, somewhat challenging to close that gap, to close that abyss. And I think that the reality is that we have opportunity, again, from all the conversations that we've had, and we've had a lot of them, shared experience, the differences the nuances between what your life experience has been, what mine has been, our career trajectory, our leadership trajectory, the conversations that we've had with others. And that's why i'm so looking forward to the guests that we'll have on the show because i think we we will get to hear a, a, a nice mix, right, of people sharing who they are as well.
0: You mentioned something about closing the gap and and why it's it's been easier said than done and i i hear it i hear it from everybody that yep. you know, hey, this group Came here the same way or similar way. And then one generation later, they're no longer in that position. Yeah. And I think you start exploring, and that's not a topic for this particular conversation, but I think what one of the things that you mentioned is that that humanity point, mm-hmm. I think that's probably the central issue is that when you just talk about groups as a monolithic thing, it's a great crutch. For you to never have to relate to that individual person's background experience to build common ground and actually understand them as people Absolutely. and if and the longer you can avoid understanding any group as individuals or people the easier it becomes for you to just gloss over any sure. number of mental gymnastics to justify whatever's right. happening and I it, it, that that's another reason why i felt you know, we we both felt compelled to have this sort of a conversation on an ongoing basis because right. that it, we, we have to meet people with fundamental leadership principle meet people where they are but no if, question but if you never fundamentally accept another person's humanity you don't move the needle there and then you deal with all these other things that's a good part of the conversation i, I want to fast forward a little bit a childhood and and formative years is good. Now, when you look at a high school and college, mm-hmm. uh, what was revealed to you during your time in high school and during your time in college? Because that's for a lot of people, yeah, when they start waking up from being insulated from all sorts of stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I would say that from a high school standpoint, I went to a high school that was that was. It was definitely diverse. I would I will say that it would still be regarded at that time, which I do, which I think is actually not the case today. But back then, it was a uh, predominantly white high school. We did have, we, like I said, we did have folks of different ethnic backgrounds that were students there. And like I said, I can't think of a time where there was like any real tension. But I think that there was for me. That's when I when because I was an athlete more of my friends were happened to be African-American and I started to probably hang out more on the quote other side of town or other parts of town where you did start to see that, you see, you start to see the stark difference between like people living in a given community like in the African-American community where it was at least at that time in Waukegan, it was lower income. You did see the police on a more regular basis you did see different interactions, right? And so it piqued my curiosity, obviously, which is one of the reasons why I took the course. Having candid conversations with a lot of the African American teachers that I had and talked about what their experiences were and them growing up. So a number of them had 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 graduated from historically black colleges and universities. That, I, as a matter of fact, if I had to if I had to guess, I would probably say eighty percent of them, which was just fairly common for that. Generation of African Americans where a lot of the advancement was as a result of them making the choice to become teachers, so that they would help educate the next generation of students in general. But their part of that intentionality about going to a historically black college and university was they wanted to also make sure that they were grooming the next group of students to to go there, which was why I made the decision to my the first college that I went to was uh, Grambling State University and the. What I remember about both Grambling and Bowie State, which were the two HBCUs that I had attended, was the immense amount of pride. And I remember, like, friends saying, they asked why I was making the decision to go to a historically Black college. And they they said, some said disparaging things about going to an HBCU, that those, the schools weren't as well funded and you weren't going to get a great education and all these different things. But for me, I really wanted to be immersed in a cultural experience that i had heard about from my teachers, and I wanted to see what that was like. And I, without question, I think if ever changed my life because of all of the, the opportunities that I had there, I think when I was there, the level of support, the level of expectation is high. A lot of people don't know that when you go to HBCU, at least my experience was in conversations with people that I know. It was about like, when you come out of this school, you better make sure that you're able to perform and that you're able to um, match. And so I, I think to, in some instances, it's unfortunate because it was, you have to be twice as good in order to be able to have an opportunity to have a shot. And so that's what we were, that's what we were taught largely. I had, for me, I don't. Professors that I loved dearly. I'll never forget um, Dr. Reginald Bess. And hopefully he's I may have to send this to him because I want him to hear this. Is absolutely one of the most amazing professors that that I had. I was in a class, it was an English class, English 101 or English Lit, I can't remember which one. But this man was an absolute taskmaster. And I tried to get out of the class and he pulled me to the side and told me how. Gifted, he thought I was because of the ideas and the thoughts that I had, and the way that I would process the information. And I'll never forget he told me that. But I must learn to be a more critical thinker. And you've heard me say this over and over. I think one of the challenges that we have in America is that we are dismissive of critical thinking, and I think it's easier to take the path of le- least resistance. And so critical thinking is not that path. I'm humbled and, you know, thankful that he pulled me to the side. And I mean, it wasn't just that one time. He gave me back papers that had a lot of red ink that I had to redo and give back and had a lot of red ink and I had to give back. But he gave me the opportunity to continue to red red ink those things and fix them. And I saw where, you know, he, he cared about me. So I think that that was formative for me because, What I took away from my uh, HBCU experience was that it was incumbent upon me to do the same when I had the opportunity for really anybody that was in my purview, irrespective of what they look like as a leader and again, as a human being to, to be a developer of others. And I think that was something that clearly came from what my experience had been. And I think it was coupled with just, like I said, the way that I was wired. Like I said, I can think all the way back to when I was probably a toddler and you know, I'm my dangling my feet off of the the side of of the porch, and that has just been a recurring theme in my life. That it's important to me to learn information and then share it out.
0: There's a couple of things that you mentioned there that that I want to respond to. Your point about critical thinking is dead on. You and I have traded Thomas Soul quotes back and forth. The problem isn't that people have forgotten how to think. The problem is that, and I'm paraphrasing, the problem is that people confuse feeling with thinking. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, when you look at any number of issues, it's a lot easier to stake out a corner based on your feelings about a thing, uh, rather than think through the implications of whatever that thing is and pick as close as you can the objective choice. We've had that conversation before, but what what struck me about what you just mentioned about your college experience Mm
1: -hmm. was
0: that I'm not putting words in your mouth, but it strikes me that your professors were exceptionally challenging in terms of the work that they expected you to produce. Mm -hmm. So what implications did that have on how you transitioned into the professional world? And we won't yeah. go all the way into it, but I'm, I'm sure yeah. there was some impact.
1: Yeah, without question. I, I think that it's the reason that that I think critical thinking became so important for me. I ultimately graduated with a degree in journalism and um, shout out to uh, Dr. Richard Mbayo, who was my uh, professor when I was at Bowie State University. And he was, again, a, another taskmaster. Just his expectation was was very high and he met you where you were at which is something that, that I learned from him but kicking and screaming you moved to another level so it wasn't like he had everybody at a same level and then they were moving at the same time he knew that there were some people that were here and there was an opportunity for them to maybe move here and that was the progress and he didn't beat them up because they didn't get to this level he, w- he was very adept at recognizing what the what the skill sets the talents were the potential was. And once he had agreement from whoever that person was, right, he helped to move them to that level. He helped them to see and understand why it was important for them to do that. And as I I took that pretty much into my uh, adult life where I thought it was important to make sure that you, you know, honor people and that you try to do the best that you can to help them move, to help them to move to the next level of of that.
0: So now that Now that you actually referenced it, when you're talking about Next Level, that's a good tease for what part two of the Lawrence Brown origin story is going to to be talking about. All of that stuff that you picked up as a kid and through college, how that is going, that shaped your professional journey and your leadership journey. This was a great first bit. I think think if we wanted to, we probably could have gone for another 30 minutes on digging in, but we don't want to. We don't want to go More too far folks. we don't want to go too far into it but no that this this is a great conversation thanks uh, thanks for sharing Absolutely. so for those again as usual we will be sharing these across all podcast channels uh, make sure you like uh share review give us feedback all that sort of stuff and then tune in next time for part two of the Lawrence Brown origin story
1: awesome thanks everyone.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.